The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation, ordinance, and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode one, we broke ground on the fact that, as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, 
Marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed, instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding, as classical examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. In part 3, we began our goal diligently searching out scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage, as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have, over time, incorrectly attributed or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. As we concluded episode 3, we had just examined several scripture references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In parts 4 through 7, we turned our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. In part 8, we asked and answered four classical questions regarding the biblical institution of marriage. In this final episode, I want to summarize what we have learned regarding the biblical institution of marriage. Firstly, we have learned that when we try to answer this or any other question, we ultimately only have two divergent worldview options with which to look at life. In the first world and life view, atheism and secular humanism would say that man is the measure of all things. Man is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, authority, truth, significance, beauty, and reality. Man decides these issues based upon opinion, percentage, consensus, culture, and the dictates of what he sees right in his own eyes. Hence, man has a very influx perception of what it means to be a leader. We use Hollywood sports, academia, the media, and the world to judge leadership qualities. As a result, we can unfortunately wind up with anyone from Adam's house cat to the Marlboro man as examples for marriage. In the second worldview, we have the revelation given in God's word that God is the ultimate authority and measure of all things. God's revelation is that he is the designer, creator, sustainer, and ruler of everything that was, is, or will be. Further, God's creation demonstrates that God is orderly. He creates according to a pattern and a plan. When we look at his creation and his plan, to the extent that we can comprehend it, all of God's handiwork reflects his glory and character. Psalm 19 says it this way, quote, 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge." Unquote. In order to know God's will, we must search his word, which gives us revelation of his sovereign will for this and the other spheres of God's creation. Think of it like a puzzle. I'm sure we've all seen and perhaps even put together one of those thousand-piece puzzles. In essence, the finished puzzle is a message, a completed information system from its creator. Each piece is an integral part of the message, not unlike verses in the Bible, which is God's message to his people. We know that there is nothing wrong with God or his message. But how often do we put the pieces in the wrong place? Worse yet, we sometimes take pieces from our own imagination, in essence, the wrong puzzle, and try to fit them into our own puzzle and create our own message to justify our own sin. But Second Peter verse 1 verse 20 says this, quote, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, unquote. Now, we generally assume that prophecy refers to God's recorded prediction of certain events within Scripture, and that would be correct. However, in a larger sense, the term prophecy, according to Strong's exhaustive concordance, more largely refers to, quote, a discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked, or comforting the afflicted, or revealing things hidden." Unquote. This means that the interpretation of Scripture which Peter refers to could properly become part of a larger discipline which we call Bible hermeneutics, scriptural exegesis, and ultimately systematic theology. With this in mind, we again ask, what have we learned regarding the biblical institution of marriage? Even more importantly, what does it mean for a husband, i.e. a man, to be a spiritual leader within the family and what does it mean to be submissive? Remember, we have a worldly humanistic approach and answer in which anyone and everyone can be a quote-unquote leader or be quote-unquote submissive. Accordingly, some believe that it is unkind for anyone to be a leader, and in order to be fair, everyone has to be a leader or no one can be a leader. This is all assuming we can decide what being a leader is. Likewise, some believe that being quote-unquote submissive implies being weak. To answer these concerns, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 says this in paraphrase, quote, God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and placed him as head over all things to the church which is his body. In other words, all things that have been given to Jesus Christ are given to him for his church, and he exercises headship over his church for her blessing, for her benefit, 
and for her good, unquote. As these issues of lordship, subjection, sovereignty, and order trickle downward to the issue of biblical marriage, we should see that Ephesians chapter 5 is immediately tied to the subject. For context, look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Quote, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body." Now essentially, as we look at the verses above, I think we can identify four important truths which shed an enormous amount of light regarding God's sovereign will on marriage, as well as the issue of leadership. They are as follows. One, These verses declare that marriage is a creation ordinance designed by God between one man and one woman for all mankind. Now, we could rightly choose to focus on marriage being a created and copyright instituted relationship exclusively designed for one man and woman. However, here... I would like to focus on marriage as being a creation ordinance by God designed for a specific purpose. So, if we were to ask what would be the highest ultimate purpose of marriage, we might correctly conclude, like everything else in creation, marriage is a significant mechanism by which we, God's creation, Glorify him according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, which says, quote, And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Unquote. In this respect, we who are God's chosen men, called by his name, have the chief responsibility by God's grace and indwelling power to humbly demonstrate leadership by example, by submitting and consecrating our own lives, our marriage, and our family to be used to glorify God and his kingdom. 2. These verses declare that God is sovereignly in control of all things, including what goes on in our personal, intimate lives. This goes towards sanctification. As leaders within the sphere of our family, our marriage, our individual lives at home and in the community, we bear the responsibility to progressively surrender our will to the will of God according to his word and context. By example, we exhort, encourage, convict, and restore others with whom we come into contact with. We must also remain humble, accountable, and submissive to the sphere of God's ultimate authority and to those whom God uses as iron to sharpen iron. 3. They declare that God creates according to design, order, structure, and meaning. Everywhere we look within the revelation of God's word, we see meaningful order, design, structure, rank, and hierarchy. For example, within God himself we see the Trinity, 
as applied to salvation, we see the Father who does the choosing, the Son who does the purchasing, and the Holy Spirit who does the sealing. We see rank and hierarchy among both angels and demons as in Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 and Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. In Revelation, we see the 24 elders in heaven. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1, we read, quote, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God, unquote. Four, they demonstrate that God designs and creates visible earthly types according to a pattern which illustrate invisible heavenly or eternal substances. Prior to Genesis 3 and post-Revelation 21 verse 1, the earth and God's creation perfectly reflect God's will for his creation. Everything is in harmony. Between these two points, God is dealing with sin which disrupts that harmony. Our job as God's elect, the church, those called out, is to be submissive wherever God has placed us in the economy of his creation. We are to pray by his grace that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His plan, his design, his will is that when it comes to the sphere of the family, marriage, that you and I as men answer the call and seek to have God empower us by his spirit as leaders. You and I, all of us, including our wives, men and women, are created in the image of God. We are designed and built to reflect His glory. Both men and women are created equal in the image of God. We are equal in being, in nature, in character, in personhood, and in essence. But, and this is where the confusion arises, men and women are different in terms of role and function. Role and function have nothing to do with making one sex better or worse than the other. Now, if I may, allow me to speak personally to you all, and in particular as a man to men in this matter. One of my roles, one of our roles as men, according to God's design, is to be a leader in the sphere of the family, our families, our marriages. Now, if you're anything like me, I have to be honest with myself and admit I'm not a leader. I'm not a good example. In fact, according to Romans 3, there is nothing good in me. My heart is desperately wicked. If and when I try to lead, or even just to walk according to the knowledge of my flesh, then I, my wife, my children, and anyone else who is unfortunate enough to be following my quote-unquote leadership are going to be the proverbial blind men all falling into a ditch. This is a problem because if we are honest, the truth is that we are not leaders. We may be men, and therefore we try to tell ourselves and our wives 
that God has ordained men as leaders, therefore they should follow us. But my wife knows me. Your wife knows you. They know better than anyone else that we are fallen sinners. This is where I constantly must allow God to remind me that God is in the business of repurposing broken vessels to instruments of his glory for his honor. I have to remind myself that because of sin, there is nothing in my nature, character, personhood, or essence which merits God's favor. My being a sinner doesn't qualify me for my wife to follow me under the banner of leadership simply because I'm a male. However, hopefully we can agree that both my wife and myself should follow Christ. If then, by God's grace, God draws me as a man to a saving relationship with himself through the finished work of Christ, then Christ is leading and I am following. Ideally, in a biblical marriage, we should find two people, a man and a woman, both of whom are drawn by God's grace to a saving relationship with himself through the finished work of Christ. First and foremost, each person, the husband and the wife, are following Christ. We each should acquiesce to the sovereign leadership of Christ and His will for our lives. Hopefully, the main reason that my wife was drawn to me to begin with, loves me, and continues to do so is because she sees Christ and His love exampled in my everyday life. If so, she will happily follow me because I follow Christ. We walk together because we too are agreed and are one flesh by our common love and common goal of eternal life. So, in the end, I lead by virtue of following Christ. Biblical leadership of the family in a marriage with my wife is all servant leadership. If we lead, when we lead according to God's design, we lead by example, from love, from sacrifice, and not by force, by might, or by fleshly standards. Instead, our standard of leadership is Christ. As Paul states in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, quote, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, unquote. So, our admonition, our duty, our responsibility by God is to form a relationship with our wives so as to love them and treat them as Christ treats his church. I think it is instructive that Christ refers to his church as his bride. Most of us have a wife. But when is the last time we treated our wife like a bride. Jesus is our ultimate example of a leader. The title leader truthfully falls tragically short when we recall that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is God. 
His love for his elect, the church, his bride, was such that as a leader, he paved the way for a relationship with his bride, with his own blood, thereby demonstrating the ultimate sacrificial and servanthood love. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, the underlying theme of redemptive history demonstrates God's love for his chosen outcalled ones, the church. While it has always been true that God has been faithful to his bride, the church, we who are God's bride, the church, have not always been faithful. At times, God has demonstrated very tough love to drive us to repentance and reconciliation. So God loves his bride, despite his bride not always loving him. So true sacrificial servanthood leadership is not contingent on our wives necessarily meriting it from us any more than Christ's love is contingent on us meriting it. It is a product of grace passed on to our wives and others as a reflection of the grace which Christ has bestowed on us. It is with this standard that Paul admonishes us today as men to be empowered by his spirit to love and to lead our brides according to the same love that he has for his bride, the church. Now that's the standard. But until we are glorified with Christ in eternity, it's not reality yet. Our leadership qualities, along with every other attribute of God's image which God wants to give us, is part of the process of sanctification. It's a day-by-day, moment-to-moment relationship where we walk by grace through faith and what Christ has done and not by what we do or think we can do. If we walk with Christ and Christ abides in us, then our wives will see and discern that, even if they are not believers. If they are believers, then they will have no dilemma submitting to us as men, because in doing so, they are in fact submitting to Christ who is within us as men. So in conclusion... Biblical leadership and submission in marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, are an axiomatic byproduct of both the husband and the wife submitting to Christ. God has simply designed the emphasis on the husband to have the primary responsibility to initiate and example servant leadership towards our wives. This is not to say that wives cannot lead. They should lead lives which are an example to all, including their husbands. Yet, God has designed the primary role and responsibility of leadership upon the husband. The only way that we can do this is by and through a continued relationship with Jesus through prayer, the study of his word, and an accountable fellowship in the body of his church. To these four truths, we could doubtlessly add many more. However, whatever the question, the truthful answer is always to be found by reminding ourselves 
that we must start with God and his word as the ultimate authority of meaning, morals, truth, beauty, and significance, and not man. Anytime we fail to do this, we open ourselves up to the vacuum of each person and their opinion, consensus, percentage through time, based upon the culture, the environment, the mood, and a myriad of ever-changing issues. When we process marriage, men and women, the family, and the relationships involved, we are eventually forced to conclude that either there is no meaning whatsoever except those meanings which are convenient for the moment, as each person sees right in their own eyes, or what God has designed and what God has created, what God sustains and what God has joined together represent his perfect and sovereign will on the matter. At this point, our options are either reject and rebel against them or accept and submit to them plain and simple. Father, I pray that by your grace we would repent and turn from the supposed wisdom of those things which we deem right in our own eyes. I pray that you would give us the courage to remove ourselves from the throne of our own imagination where we, in our arrogance, have declared that we, man, is the ultimate authority and measure of all things. Open our hearts and minds to instead magnify you alone as the ultimate authority of all things in heaven and earth. Impart to us your Holy Spirit and give us a new nature whereby our relationships to you as men and as women in singleness and in marriage and in everything else might be reconciled to proper fellowship with you according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in